Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, September 30th, 2022 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week on the podcast, a congressional debate, a budget surplus, a controversial ad, and Iowans at the insurrection. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. With me today are Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Hello, Tom. Hello, Aaron. We have Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough. Welcome, Caleb. Good morning, Aaron. I fact-checked that, and it is, in fact, morning. Yeah, we're all <laughs> over the map on record time, so if you hear us fumble <laughs> over those, that's why we forget uh, what time of day it is often here on the podcast. Uh, Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal is here regardless of the time. Welcome, Jared. Aaron, the, uh, the only surplus we have on this show is a surplus of laughs. <laughs> One can only hope. <laughs> Do those carry over into the next podcast? Does that laughter surplus carry? No, no, no. Over? You have to use them up for the end oh, of the fiscal okay. year. Okay, good to know. Good to know. And finally, Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Hello, Todd. Good morning. All right. First up this week, it's not just pumpkin spice season, it's also debate season. The new first district candidates, Republican incumbent Congresswoman Marionette Miller Meeks and Democratic challenger Christina Bohannon debated on Iowa PBS recently. It's a toss-up sort of district based on voter registration, although most of the national forecasters have that race leaning Republican this fall. Um, Caleb, you covered the debate. Uh, Let me give you our standard debate coverage question. How did the candidates do? And did anyone do anything, either positive or negative, to move the needle in any meaningful way in this campaign. Yeah, and I think that this kind of got the standard answer, which is that I don't think it really moved the needle all that much. Um, I think uh, as far as performance goes, there wasn't a clear, uh, I guess, um, advantage. But I think Christina Bohannon maybe had a slight advantage um, in other ways, just because she was able to go on the offensive and kind of force Miller Meeks to defend her record. But I think Marionette Miller Meeks did a pretty good job of that and of also attacking Bohannon on some of those divisive issues. Um, but overall, it was it was pretty boilerplate. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't really any big surprise moments like the break even price of soybean scandal of, of 2020. Um, but as far as uh, I, I think both were really polished and, and did really well. Um, and the big takeaway, I think, was that both candidates were trying pretty hard to convince voters that they're bipartisan and willing to work across the aisle. And, you know, that's not uncommon that we're seeing this year in a lot of Iowa's districts. But, I mean, I think it matters in this district, um, especially, obviously, neither one can win without significant buy-in from independents. And Miller Meeks um, famously won the second district by six votes in 2020. This new district might skew a little more Republican, but there's still that need to convince people that you're not kind of in lockstep with either party. So we saw Bohannon do that by um, saying that she was against President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan which I think um, I, I, she may have been on the record saying that before, but I saw some people on on the social media is kind of be surprised by that. And then uh, Marianne Miller-Meeks kind of talked about how she had helped pass several bills in the House, which is controlled by Democrats, saying, you know, she's willing to work across the aisle anytime there's good ideas. Um, so that was a big you know, point from both of them uh, that night. Yeah, that um, circle back on a point you made there, um, that has definitely been a theme in this campaign and, and some of the others too. I don't know how much, Tom, you can tell me how much you've seen it in, in the second district in, in um, um, Mathis uh, Hinson, uh, but definitely I've seen in Miller Meeks Bohannon and certainly in, in Nunn Axney. Uh, uh, and I think you always see this, but, but this campaign, this cycle in particular, 
this general election really see candidates leaning into that. You know, I'm I'm an independent. I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I'm going to represent Iowa. I, I can work bipartisan. Um, really hearing a lot of that in this uh, campaign that's been in these congressional races. And, and, and I think that's at least in part with, you know, the whole Congress's terrible approval ratings and nobody wants to run on, I'm going to be Congress to be one of them, you know, that they, they want to be seen as, a, you know, an independent fighter for Iowa. I was, um, I was kind of curious, Caleb, what in particular seemed to be maybe the strongest point of contention between the two of them during the, uh, the debate? I think abortion um, really rose to be that biggest contention. And um, I mean, even then, though, I, I it, it was maybe a different kind of um, nonpartisan or bipartisanship. But each of them was trying to, you know, say that their position was the consensus one. Right. So they had a lot of uh, they, they disagreed pretty, pretty strongly on abortion, as you couldn't expect. Um, but, you know, Christine Bohannon um, was saying that pointing to Miller Meeks's support for a 15-week abortion ban, national 15-week abortion ban, saying, you know, that's going to be dangerous and um, threaten people's lives. Uh, and uh, Miller Meeks then pointed to Bohannon's support for, uh, or said that Bohannon supported um, up until birth abortions. Christine Bohannon uh, denied that, um, said she supported this framework under Roe v. Wade. Um, but, you know, both trying to pit each other as extreme and not in line with the voters. Um, so that was definitely the biggest point of disagreement that I uh, took away. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a, a great summary of what we're hearing in other races too. that whole the the attempt to it's my opponent who has the extreme um, position. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how that message plays on the uh, on the campaign in the election, uh, because, look, we have public opinion polls. Um, we know the real answer to that, um, and that is that the a strong majority of Americans for the longest time, for decades and decades, have felt that abortion should be um, legal at le- in at least some cases. So we, we know where the majority of, of people are on this. Um, but uh, campaign messaging isn't always rooted in <laughs> fact and reality, and, and we'll see. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how um, convincing um, those arguments are um so, so so that's one down uh as far as congressional campaigns and, and debates I, th- that's the only one that do we uh caleb is, are these two doing any other debates or if anyone knows uh, that we know of i think that's the only one i'm aware of anyways not that i know of that's been scheduled now yeah and that seems to be a theme uh, here in, in all these campaigns everybody's basically just doing one debate um uh we mentioned the second district candidates um Republican Ashley Hinson and Democrat Liz Mathis, they will also be debating on Iowa PBS. And, and uh, big news for our listeners, our own Tom Barton will be making his Iowa PBS debut as a reporter panelist on that debate. Uh, go get him, Tom. Um, I think that's the only one that those two have agreed to as well, Tom. Oh, they do have one more? Yeah, um, there is another um, debate scheduled Um uh, uh, with uh, KCRG, and I think it's also going to be carried on um, okay. KCCI, and then um, the um, I think the affiliate uh, network in the Quad Cities, maybe, and um, um, uh, another one that's that, that's escaping me. But they do have um, another um, debate. They've got two debates: Iowa PBS, and then um, the KCRG. Okay. Okay, well, bless their hearts, overachievers there in the in the new second district, um, and then the third district candidates, um, incumbent Democrat Cindy Axney and Republican challenger Zach Nunn are debating 
um, not on Iowa PBS, but on one of the Des Moines uh, TV stations. And, and, um, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that that's the only one that they've agreed to. Um, but obviously I've already been wrong once on this podcast, so, so don't quote me for sure there. Um, and as we've covered here previously on the podcast, it looks like we won't be getting a debate in the fourth district at all. So, sorry, Jared. Well, not, not with that attitude, we won't be, we won't be getting one, Aaron, you know, so. <laughs> all right. We move on now from people who are campaigning to represent Iowa at the U.S. Capitol to a few Iowans who have been convicted for crimes they committed at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Um, I, I, I don't mean to make light of that, but I'm kind of proud of the transition. Uh, we're now up to at least three Iowans who have been convicted for committing myriad crimes during the insurrection, uh, and two of them are among the more significant um, cases among the more than 400 convictions and guilty pleas thus far. Um, one recent conviction was of Douglas Jensen of Des Moines, uh, the man who led the rioting mob through the Senate and was captured on uh, multiple harrowing images and videos. Uh, if you've seen any news coverage of that day at all, you've almost surely seen um, a photo or a video of, of Doug Jensen and, and that mob in the Senate. Um, another uh, recent Iowa convicted was Kyle Young um, in, of Redfield. He received a seven-year sentence, which is among the highest, uh, the longest handed down thus far. Um, he was sentenced um, in, in part because he was charged with participating in an assault on a police officer uh, during the insurrection. And meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum, we, we've had another one. Uh, Jared, there was a guilty plea by a Sioux City man this week uh, for his involvement in the January 6th attacks. Uh, it sounds like the charges against him were not nearly as severe as uh, those, those other two I just mentioned. Um, he, he might not have been um, uh, involved in quite as, as much as, as those others. Tell us a little bit more about uh, the case up in your neck of the woods. So yeah, this one I, I do think was interesting in part because it does diverge from those others you mentioned. Um, in this particular case, the Sioux City resident, uh, Kenneth Rader was his name. He was one of the like first wave of people who got into the Capitol. He had a Trump 2020 hoodie on. And once he was inside, he kind of stopped near like a Senate door and then just sort of watched, grabbed some stuff as like souvenirs and then left. And, you know, his lawyer sort of pointed to that and basically said that he he looked out of place and that, you know, it, he didn't really do anything while he was there. And, you know, that argument might have worked to some extent because he only got 90 days, which is way less than any of those guys you talked about. Um, and then he has three years of uh, probation with the condition he continued substance abuse treatment, which I think is maybe different than those other guys, too. Um, the, the judge did say, though, um, that he wants uh, Mr. Rader to do well. And then he said, but I don't want you in 2024 to come back and do this again, which uh, heck of a quote uh, for a judge to say. Um, and uh, Mr. Rader said at some point during the uh, proceedings this week uh, that he recognized that the event was entirely wrong, um, that it was wrong and that his actions were wrong. But then one of the U.S. attorneys pointed to a Facebook post of his from last week um, where he continued to say that Trump is president. Um, so with some of these kinds of cases, you know, the extreme ones or the more minor ones like this, I, I do sort of wonder if like, you know, the punishments or even going through this whole process or, actually going to lead to any, you know, meaningful changes of heart, or if this is just going to 
further solidify the beliefs people already have because they're in their minds being persecuted for them. And and so I was kind of curious what everyone else maybe thinks about that. <laughs> no, and, and I've heard that. I mean, and, and you hear it from some of the most prominent, you know, national, the top level figures, the, the Roger Stones of the world, um, you know, trumpeting the trumpeting that idea that this is just more evidence that the whole system is against, these good folks who are just trying to, um, you know, uh, preserve what actually happened in the, in the 2020 election. So it, it, it yeah, I mean, that's, I, I think you highlighted something really important there, Jared, and in, in, in that case and noting that this person is still, um, apparently, um, clinging to some of those notions uh, about what happened. And, and, and it, it's know, weird. Think- it's weird even in just, you know, like not even in, in this particular case, but just in general, like if someone has a persecution complex and then does something wrong, you know, in, in our legal system, you have to do something about that. But again, if they think they're already being persecuted, you're not really going to shake them out of that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It, and, and, and like you said, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, and a lot of people are saying what sound like the right things um i've learned from my mistake i learned i was wrong i I, you know apologizing to the police officers um but um if trump runs again and loses to joe biden again uh, what's that day gonna look like Uh, that that that, that'll be the ultimate test of uh whether anything has actually changed um and just saying those sentences in sequence uh makes me uh almost return my breakfast uh back up so so let's move on um uh let's get back here in iowa uh where a democratic gubernatorial candidate deidre DeGier responded to a new campaign ad from her opponent republican incumbent kim reynolds that ad uh featured missouri congresswoman cory bush espousing her support for defunding police departments DeGier does not share that policy stance according to her stated comments on multiple occasions Uh, But it was hard to ignore that that campaign ad used Cori Bush saying defund the police um, and combined with the fact that both Bush and DeGier are black women. DeGier called the ad, I talked to her, she called the ad unfortunate, short-sighted, lazy, and a figment of Reynolds' imagination. Uh, Other than that, she loved it. Uh, (laughs) Reynolds' campaign said the ad clearly states that Reynolds is talking about policies and issues in other states as a means of comparing them to Iowa. Um, and, and in fairness, full disclosure, Reynolds does say, look what's happening elsewhere, talking about the issues and then before pivoting to the camera to say, aren't you glad you live in Iowa? Todd, aren't you glad you live in Iowa? And uh, what did you think of the ad and the, and the Reynolds campaign's defense? Oh, most days. I'm, I'm glad. Not, not every day. And fewer days than it used to be. But uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote about this in a column and, and basically argued that they're using some racist tropes and dog whistles in this ad. It's been called race baiting, which I sort of agree with. I mean, first, you've got this opening of the ad where the governor is in some sort of coffee shop where they apparently play old clips of U.S. Representative Cori Bush from August of 2021 on their televisions, which is an interesting choice of entertainment for the coffee shop. But uh, so she, you know, was talking about defunding the police. It was a long interview 
I believe on CBS or NBC where she was talking about those issues. Uh, she says we have to defund the police or something to that effect. But I mean, it's, you know, obviously the, the, the problem with that is that, uh, you know, I, I think the, I think the, the Reynolds campaign decided they had to find a black woman who's a politician saying that she wants to defund the police because, well, they can't find any video of, of her actual opponent, uh, Deidre DeGere, saying that she wants to defund the police because she doesn't want to defund the police. So they plant that image in, in the minds of those watching the ad that, hey, black Democratic women, they, they favor defunding the police. Also, then you then you get into these images of, of, of a police car on fire, and then they turn to immigration and the chaos at the border, they say. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, you look at that, those three parts of the ad, and it's hard to come across, it's hard to come up with, with any other conclusion, in my opinion, that they're not trying to, to play on racial fears of, of, you know, older white Iowa voters. And those are, of course, the ones that have all the common sense that she talks about it later in the ad, you know, and, 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 you know, when we hear about common sense, it's often faith and work ethic and all of those good things that apparently she's saying these uh, people in other states and of, you know, just the other doesn't have. So wrap up the whole package. It just, it's, it's a pretty shameful ad. Uh, it bears no resemblance to reality in Iowa this year pointed out, but reality, of course, is no constraint on television ads. Uh, but, you know, the, the, and the, you had a little response there, but generally to the, to the direct charge of what this ad is meant to convey, they haven't really said a whole lot of, uh, in, in response to that. So, you know, and what, you know, in, in regards to immigration, I mean, it's like, how long can we keep doing this stuff? I mean, if there were television ads back at the turn of the century, there would have been scary images of Irish and Italian people. If there would have been TV ads in the 20s, it would have been Asian people, Eastern Europeans. I mean, I don't know if any of you watched the, uh, the Ken Burns documentary on U.S. and the Holocaust, but our racial quotas that were passed in the 1920s basically put up a roadblock to Jews trying to you know, flee the Nazis. And we all know what happened after that. So it, it gets tiresome to every generation, you know, where we have immigrants as scapegoats, immigrants as, as the scary other immigrants are coming to, you know, they're, they're carrying rainbow fentanyl or whatever, whatever the, the drug of, you know, the, the trendy drug is that Republicans are talking about that, you know, a teaspoon of it will kill a million people or something along those lines. So it's just a lot of fear. The ad represents those fears. And it basically says, aren't you glad you live in Iowa so you don't have to deal with these fears because we'll, we'll make sure none of those, you know, none of that scary stuff happens here. It's, I mean, I've seen a lot of TV ads and some worse and, but this, this one I, I think is pretty bad. Yeah. And, and, uh, and a cynic, and, and I'm sure there are no cynics uh, on this uh, panel of, of political <laughs> reporters, but uh, a cynic would suggest that that's part of the reason we never get, federal immigration reform because um some folks like to have that as a campaign issue every every two to four years uh to to whip voters into a frenzy about well and yeah and you know it's the same thing now with with police reform justice reform mm -hmm. i mean we had that moment in 2020 when the legislature acted and the governor signed it and said this is just the beginning and then instead we got the back the blue 
bill with all of the new penalties for protest and and now basically anybody that comes forward with a with some sort of agenda to reform policing is wants to defund the police it's the same with immigration yeah. if you want to reform immigration you want open borders i mean that's there's there's no real discussion there's just scoring political points and and trying to and trying to scare voters yeah Todd, as the uh, as the only uh, native uh, Missourian on the podcast, I do feel uh, compelled to mention that some of this stuff is not really rooted in reality in Missouri either. Like St. Louis, where which is where you know Cory Bush represents, they I mean they didn't defund the police. They they had a budget cut of like two percent that amounted to like the total budget was one hundred seventy one million proposed for St. Louis for twenty twenty two, and so there was a budget cut of about like four million dollars, which isn't exactly just gutting the police department and letting the the mobs uh you know rule rule the city yeah it's i mean that's yeah and really defunding the police is not a in any way a mainstream position in the democratic party there's very few that are espousing it it's i don't think it's ever been an issue in iowa that you know i mean there may be social justice activists and people who feel that way and you know based on some of the things that are happened i you know it's 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 I think the overall the overall uh, effort has been to say, you know, how do we how do we make policing work better for communities that that are you know sometimes victimized. So that's the issue, but we can't, like I say, talk about it because you you want to defund the police. Yeah. yeah, and and to circle all the way back on the ad and and put maybe a final pin in it um, again is it as it if Reynolds has before done this where she's uh and 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 quite frequently honestly and and maybe if they had taken a different track with the images they used in in the video um they might not have invited this criticism but she has on regular occasion done the whole iowa common sense versus look at all the messes in these um liberal cities and and if and if that had just been the message and the images hadn't been what they were um there might not have been this criticism because she's done that constantly. It goes back to the old Terry Branstad playbook of, of beating up on Illinois on every possible opportunity he could. Um, but using that clip of, of Corey Bush, uh, another black woman uh, talking about that policy and specifically that, that, I mean, to, to completely ignore that visual is, is putting your head in the sand and it, it, it's, it's worth talking about, um, you know uh, um, that and and why that's in there and and um, and Todd um, uh, obviously offered his thoughts on it. Uh, I, I, you know it that specific element I think um, to me is what what really kind of tipped this and, and created this discussion. If it hadn't been for that, I think it's entirely possible that nobody's even talking about this at. Although again cynic and, and may suggest maybe that's that's okay with um folks too that all press is good press um moving on finally this week uh governor reynolds announced the state's budget surplus grew to nearly two billion dollars that's just slightly more than the uh on iowa politics podcast budget surplus um a little healthier than ours um uh, so that's just extra money sitting in the state's general fund as, as i wrote in the newsletter this week Imagine that you paid all your bills at the end of the year, and after everything was paid off, you still had a balance of $2 billion in your checkbook. That, that's essentially the position Iowa finds itself in. Um, it should be noted, and I'm going to hold myself accountable here, 
give myself a, a, a podcast tongue lashing because uh, I just completely spaced and neglected to note this in my story um, this week. Part of the reason Iowa's fiscal health is so exceptionally strong is because tax revenue was higher um, in the last year or two than expected during the peak of the pandemic. And a big reason for that is because of the federal pandemic relief funding that, that puts uh, spending money in people's pocket, pockets. Uh, so the state blew past revenue projections because people kept spending uh, money even through the pandemic. Um, so, so $2 billion uh, just sitting there uh, looking for a home. Uh, Tom, you're going to be on our team that covers the Iowa legislature next January. Uh, what do you expect to hear? What, what are the, all those folks up there at the Capitol going to want to do with all that coin? Well, we don't know for sure, but the anticipation is that this would give cover to state house Republicans to enact more state cat state tax cuts uh, during next year's legislative session. Uh, should they retain their majorities in the Iowa House and Senate and should Governor Kim Reynolds uh, win re-election November 8th? Bettendorf Republican State Representative Gary Moore, who chairs the Budget Writing House Appropriations Committee, didn't rule out the possibility of further tax cuts next year when I asked him about this back in January when early projections showed there would be a surplus. He said Republicans, uh, th th there were some areas State House Republicans would want to continue to increase spending, notably education, um, but did say that if there were additional dollars beyond what Republicans felt was reasonable for the state for next fiscal year, that they would love to reduce taxes again if the economy at the time warrants. Um, some Democrats who have spoken with anticipate State House Republicans may move to do what Kansas did in I believe 2012 and 2013, and may move to eliminate individual income taxes on business income earned in pass-through entities, such as um, like sole proprietorships, partnerships, um, LLCs that are taxed as partnerships and, and S-corps. Um, you know, they note that should uh, the Iowa legislature move in that direction, that uh, Kansas lawmakers subsequently substantially repealed the tax cuts after revenues plunged, um, leading to cuts to education and, and other vital services and, and downgrades in, in the state's bond rating. Um, so again, we haven't heard any kind of definitive plans from lawmakers as about what this request. State House Democrats and uh, Democratic gubernatorial nominee Deidre DeGere have proposed using part of the surplus to provide an additional uh, $300 million in state funding to K-12 uh, public schools, as well as um, using the surplus to fully fund the state's mental health system. Um, some State House Democrats have also talked about expanding access to affordable housing. Um, and, and then they've also talked about um, expanded renewable energy use. Yeah, obviously, um, that that's that's Tom is exactly right. It's not like concrete plans are coming out yet, but the the thing that you hear most often, especially assuming Republicans maintain their majority, will be uh, tax cuts. Uh, Todd or anyone else, if you, if you've heard from your state legislators in your area, is there any? I think that one of the things that Tom mentioned was interesting, you know, the, the mental health system that, it, you know, that's been a bipartisan effort as far as trying to set up structures, but the, there's um, the, the advocates will tell you there's still a lot of need for funding to get some of these programs rolling is if there, are there any programs that will see 
um, and, and we're assuming the Republican trifecta stays in, in place here. Are there any programs that'll see any of this $2 billion at all, do you think? Or, or is it just all going to be uh, for tax cuts and, and, and uh, uh, sit on the rest? I mean, it was $1.2 billion surplus last year, so they didn't use that either. And now we're up to $2 billion. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what they may do is with this large surplus and their taxpayer relief fund is they may do what they've done in the past. You know, they pass a series of tax cuts. They, they're made to look more affordable because they're phased in over a period of time and there are some triggers. It wouldn't surprise me to see them come in and, and, and accelerate the taxes they passed and signed this year and get rid of some of those triggers and just bring us to a 3.9% flat tax faster than what the bill said. Because, of course, if they remain in control and the governor wins, as is, as is the likelihood, they'll have a mandate to to uh, accelerate those, those tax cuts. Uh, I mean, everybody needs to be a little bit careful about surpluses because, I mean, tax cuts are forever. And if you spend $300 million on K through 12 education and, and ongoing expenses, I mean, there may come a day where there isn't a surplus and then you've got, you've got some stuff you can't afford, including the tax cuts. I mean, I think I wrote, this might be well, at least a half dozen largest tax cuts in Iowa history that have happened in the last, you know, 30 years or so. So this could be the next bit largest tax cut in Iowa history. But uh, at some point, you know, the, the, the revenues are not going to be as rosy. And, and I think we've seen that in previous decades where tax cuts and spending binges on surplus dollars led to, you know, budget problems down the road and across the board cuts and, and stuff like that. If, if what I'm hearing is right here, I am hearing <clears throat> Uh, conservative Todd Dorman espousing that one-time money should not be used for ongoing spent expenses. Is that what I Well, yeah, you, you have to be careful. I mean, it just, I mean, you can invest in education and, and higher education, all those things in ways with surplus money that may not, that may be sort of, you know, you set up a, a, a grant program for innovative education ideas, or you do some of these other things that are more or less, uh, being funded with money that you know isn't is is not necessarily ongoing, but you know, but it also shows we have tax revenues coming in at a higher clip than what's being estimated, and that's been going on a while. So if you want to give schools four percent allowable growth, I think you could probably do that. You can do some of those things. You can you can actually increase Regents funding. Uh, it, that I don't think that's irresponsible. But if you if you're talking about spending you know, all of the surplus, then I think you gotta, you have to be careful. Yeah. Uh, obviously what will be one of the major topics as we get uh, ready and look ahead to the next legislative session, there'll be plenty of time to talk about that on future episodes, but that's it for this edition of on Iowa politics. We hope you enjoyed it. If you do tell your friends, subscribe to us on any number of streaming audio services, if you haven't already. And if you have any topics you'd like to suggest, or just want to reach out and say, Hey, send an email to podcasts at the gazette.com. Now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox, you'll receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team here. You can subscribe to that On Iowa Politics newsletter at our website, thegazette.com. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you're hearing here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Helper Stout will play us out this week. 
you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, please send us a sound file. For Tom, Caleb, Jared, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening. Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.